What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome to this week of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. It's Brenda here, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Amira Rose Davis and Lindsay Gibbs. And before we begin, I want to say happy birthday or anniversary to us. This is our 200th episode. And of course, while we miss co-hosts Jessica Luther and Shereen Ahmed, we're virtually celebrating. This week, we're going to break down the recent NCAA Supreme Court case. We're going to burn the terrible things in sport and also celebrate people doing the work to change it. You know, what the NCAA is trying desperately to do is to maintain the ability to control this, right? So that it's not these individual states popping up. Because if um, a student athlete can go to Florida and have access to their name, image, and likeness, then, you know, they're going to go there as opposed to the schools elsewhere. And the NCAA wants to keep things uniform. But before all that, this week, Croatian tennis player Aleksandra Aljanakova sold the space between her elbow and her shoulder inside of her right arm and the purchaser can commission a tattoo or temporary body art to be placed there. Um, is this something you would do, Linz? I don't even know what anything you just said means. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm so confused. Uh I mean, I will say it sounds, you know, very entrepreneurial and, you know, we live in a world of capitalism and, you know, if people are going to pay you for stuff, like make it work, especially, you know, women in sports, make it work. At a certain point, it's just hands up um, in the air, like whatever. Amira? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I feel about it. I also feel like I really like her... Uh, entrepreneur like I like her betting on herself like she's telling she literally (laughs) you can look at her quote she's like listen I'm only about to be a star like this part of my arm from my elbow to my shoulder which is where she's auctioning off her body art she's like this will be seen by everybody because I'm about to be the best tennis player ever and I really like that uh belief in oneself and um (laughs) I like that sales pitch. So <laughs> I enjoyed that a great deal. But it also reminded I mean, like, she's not the first person to do this. But it also reminded me of, like, that growing, like Lindsay said, like, how much can get wrapped into, like, earning potential. And it's not just, like, selling ad space. I, like, read this article about influencers who, like, sell the ability to decide what they're going to do each day. And I think about, like, how many ways people think to monetize their selves (laughs) like from whether it's like permanent body art or like decision making or it's I definitely was like mind blown emoji and also like her standards for what could or could not be art like it was like can't be extremism or go against WTA protocols and then that's it oh it's unbelievable like that is not enough stipulation (laughs) for me yeah I'd live in fear. I would be living in fear of what someone could potentially think up to put on my arm. I just have to say the fact that like she sold via cryptocurrency is where like it really, for me, just goes off the rails because I don't understand anything about cryptocurrency. (laughs) And this is not an invitation to explain it to me. (laughs) Anybody. I just like. I think we can say that people just want it. I think that's good enough to say people want that currency. It is worth something. And thus she has now given away her arm to, you know, goodness knows what. Oof. Well, moving on. 
Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in the case of Alston versus the NCAA. Alston is actually more than one person that has been grouped into that name, and it results from several cases that had been seen and heard by the lower courts. But it is the first time that the National Collegiate Athletics Association has appeared in front of the Supreme Court since 1984. And just like the last time, though that was about television rights, it centers on A, if the NCAA is violating antitrust by monopolizing a market, and B, if there's something uniquely wonderful about amateur sports to justify creating such a trust, meaning that the wonderfulness of amateur sports at the collegiate level is actually enough to supersede the laws related to basically fixing a market. There's a lot of interpretation about the way the justices questioning may indicate their thinking or decisions on it, but it's still fairly early on. So I want to I want to start by asking about some of the assumptions that go into the coverage and litigation of NCAA sports. And the first is that almost everyone and and they're right, but simply it's probably too one-dimensional to say, assumes that college athletic programs make a lot of money. And I'd like to ask a little bit more about this. Amira, do they make a lot of money? And and how do they make their money? This is a complicated answer because part of the point is that it's hard to track. Um, So a few things off the bat. When we're talking about college sports, we're talking about so many things under that umbrella that are not playing with the same situation financially at all. The Power Five schools, so schools in the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-12, the ACC, and the SEC, stand apart because of the money largely generated by their college football programs. But even within that, the gap between the top tier programs and other programs within even Power Five schools is vast. Um, And then, of course, you have a great majority of college athletics that should always be operating at a deficit just by based on logic, right? They're not filling stadiums. They don't have TV deals. They don't have all of the kind of revenue streams that you would assume. And yet there's going to be a cost to operate them. And this includes not only the way that people, critics might say, oh, women's sports don't build into revenue, but this includes almost every sport, right? Except for, you know, these big football programs, and it includes football programs outside of these kind of lucrative conferences. Now, within that, right, why it's sometimes hard to track about if they're making money, it's because they also have gotten very good at spending as fast as they earn. So it's not uncommon for schools to operate at a deficit because they're participating in an arms race because they can't, you know, recruit in the same way. And so the schools who are on the top want to stay there. So they build spas and mini golf things. And, you know, I burned this a few weeks ago that Penn State in a year that everybody is getting furloughed and athletics was eliminating positions, still found the ability to borrow and add a multi-million dollar football building renovation, right? And so this is something that is quite common. Um, I'd point to a report, great reporting in the Washington Post um, by uh, Will Hobson and Stephen Rich uh, a few years ago. And in one of their reports, one of the things they talk about is like Auburn. And Auburn asked, in a year where the Auburn Athletics Department said that they lost $17 million, they still got the Auburn Board of Trustees to approve $13.9 million expense for like these things, right? These cherry on top things. And that is very common at schools who are trying to stay at the top, but it's also common for schools who are aspiring. So that same year, Rutgers, who has not had the same type of football success, but is always justifying their reaching for it, their aspirations for it, also, you know, uses this justification to try to push through more and more investment in a program. And so this is why it's really hard um, 
to say, are they making money? Hell yeah, they're making more money now than we've ever seen before in terms of the ballooning of revenue deals and things like that. But the expenses, and it's not just the arms race, one of the biggest expenses for these programs are severance pays of coaches and athletic administrators who leave. We just saw this in the wake of Jessica's reporting on LSU, all of the athletic administrators in, in various places who are getting, you know, losing their jobs, they're losing their jobs with buyouts, with $8 million as they walk out the door. And so all of these things mean that it looks a lot more muddled than it really is, which is, yes, a lot of money is coming in, but who sees it? Obviously not the players, but also, you know, a tiny percentage of people in athletic departments. Yeah, and thank you for that. And we we should keep in mind that every year, U.S. News and World Report or whatever, which is trash, but what do we have to go on? Um, gives us at least a sense of the percentage of alumni donations. And the top 10 universities in terms of how much their alumni give do not have um, big-time sports programs at all. I mean, it's almost always Princeton, Williams, Bowdoin, Amherst, Carleton, College of the Holy Cross. These are These are liberal arts institutions. I mean, Princeton as an Ivy, but... If you add the Ivies, I mean, it gets even it gets even more pronounced. So the argument that somehow this is pulling in these amazing alumni donations seems like straw man um, at best when you look at the actual um, rates of these things. Um, so okay, that brings us to a kind of central question, um, which has to do with a line of questioning started by Justice Sonia Sotomayor who seemed concerned, and again, we don't, we don't know what's going on in her head when she asked these questions yet, but seemed concerned that paying players may effectively, quote, kill college sports as we know them. And this was a, interpreted as perhaps her being worried for amateurism. And I think I want to ask, and I'll, I'll start with you, Linz, um, should we care about the death of, of college sports? Yes, I mean, because it's become just such an integral part of so many sports, of so many lives, of so many pipelines, right? Like, there are uh, so many people, um, you know, who that's their dream, that's their goal, and I don't want to trivialize that by saying this is all so corrupt, it has no merit, bye. Do you know what I mean? Which I think I can tend to want to say sometimes because uh, that's the easy answer. You know, I think that especially for, um, you know, like, like, let's be honest, I mean, especially for women's sports, there's no doubt that, um, you know, these uh, collegiate programs offer a lot of uh, support for women's and offer them a pathway through to the Olympics in a lot of sports, you know, um, to playing overseas. There are options. That being said, that just means we need to make sure that we're doing this. We're making changes intentionally and purposefully. That doesn't mean we have to keep things exactly the way they are because we're afraid of like what change might be. Cause the, the, the way things currently are, are not tenable. Um, and so, I am absolutely not in favor of keeping things the way they are, but I do want to go forward, you know, keeping in mind uh, the value these have and either finding a way to provide that value elsewhere or to keep some parts of, um, you know, this system intact. I mean, you know, one way that people are saying is, you know, if there's just, if it's just the name, image, and likeness rights, do you know what I mean? The schools aren't actually like paying anything for that technically. Do you know what I mean? That's all going on like outside of the schools, um, essentially for athletes. So, you know, the schools themselves aren't actually paying. So I don't know, but th those are kind of my rambling thoughts. I'm certainly not clutching my pearls. <laughs> I feel like that's not an activity we ever do on the show. <laughs> like, um, Amira, what, how do you weigh in on this? Well, mostly that the concern is like as old as college sports itself. Almost immediately after we see college football introduced in the Ivies in the early 20th century, you have articles and screeds about how, you know, they're losing touch with the real kind of foundation of what the competition should be, right? 
even as black college football is picking up in the same time period, by the 30s, you have Du Bois writing about how it's lost its way and it's so bloated and there's like real, they're sneaking in professionals and there's, you know, money is, is doing it. And so for me, what I'm lost with is that the long history of college sports has been a history of, of profit or attempt to profit under the veil of amateurism. And that is the history of it. There's a very, very small window of time in which you could possibly point to college sports being anything else. And so for me, it's like, this is college sports as we know it. And when it was like that, it was totally segregated. Right. (laughs) You know, like these are all these things. And like, what, what is it that we want to maintain from it? What do we want to extract and what is, you know, not viable as Lindsay's, you know, pointing out. And I think a lot of it actually goes to the foundation of the idea of sports in the first place and or of college sports and it's like what is the point like 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 I'm not asking to say oh what is the point but like literally I think that the idea of college sports has always had a false kind of romanticism but in practice is what we're seeing now just ballooned and so when I hear that line of questioning, like I'll, mostly I have questions about like, what do people think college sports is? Because I often feel like what we're dealing with here is the gap between this romanticized vision of it and what it's always been on the ground in practice. Um, and and to, to Lindsay's point, at a point now where it's unsustainable. I mean, it's been unsustainable, but the ballooning TV revenues and salaries of administrators makes it even more um, blatant of how inequitable these systems are. So, I mean, college sports as we know it does need to be. <laughs> like, that's not that's not worth saving, but I would definitely invite conversation of, like, what does a vision of college sports look like? In what other arena of U.S. society is getting paid a moral quandary? I just, it's like unbelievable to me that like the hyper-capitalist place in which we occupy is like, oh, it's so awesome to not get paid for something. I mean, we just talked about somebody selling part of their body. And even on this critical podcast, we're like, oh, look at that entrepreneur right (laughs) and here's and here's this justice the supreme court justice that's sort of you know uh putatively progressive um saying you know uh will we miss that uh activity in which it's so awesome that people do not get paid so it's just amazing in terms of thinking about of course it matters who's the not getting paid who's the consuming um, party in all of this. And that just totally changes the questioning. I guess for me, I look at the graduation rates of most college football players who are predominantly African-American. Um, and I think I would prefer them to have time to study. (laughs) March Madness comes around and I just get flamed. I get angry. I can't help it. It's midterms. I'm grading midterms and watching men and women players and they should be studying. And I'm sorry, it's a super nerdy thing, but let them play in the summer. Fix it, change it. You know, let's not pretend that they're studying anything for the entire month of March um then they've got to recuperate in april they've already been prepping january and february they're not students they're not doing student things i know that you know that everybody knows it at least have them play in the summer make march madness in july or something but like for me to be grading midterms and watching these players put in hours and hours and hours in this is just a scam and on top of it you know, to fund these programs, it comes from other student fees. And we know that college has only gotten more expensive over the last 40 years exponentially. And so when, Amira, you're talking about, you know, the arms race, which is a great way to put it in many ways, it's coming off the backs of other students and off of taxpayers. It's not like it's being made up. And oftentimes those student fees for athletics are hidden in tuition bills. So people don't even realize how much they're paying in to athletic departments. And um, one of the things that we do know is that athletic budget line on tuition statements has also ballooned 
disproportionately to the other kind of activities from colleges and universities. I just want to end on, you know, this point in this question that you asked, Bren, by also kind of going back to the transcript of the hearing and looking at Justice Breyer and, you know, this point about romanticism said, like, this is a tough case. And he went on to say, this is not an ordinary product, talking about college uh, sports. It's not an ordinary product. This is an effort to bring into the world something that has brought joy in all kinds of things to millions and millions of people. And it's only partly economic. So I worry a lot about judges getting into the business of deciding how amateur sports should be run. And I think to me, that's what it keeps coming back to which is like this, what makes this not a quote unquote ordinary product. And this idea about joy and and effort into the world, it reminds me of that terrible um, inside higher ed piece that argued that college football needed to play because we needed joy in our lives, right? Yes. But I also thought about this in a different way. Last night on Saturday night, if anybody watched um, the Gonzaga-UCLA game, which was a tremendous game, 19 lead changes, very exciting, end of the game theatrics, befitting of Stanford, (laughs) South Carolina. It was just, it was a wonderful, wonderful game. And on the timeline, a lot of people were like, this is why we love sports, this collective energy, this excitement. And for me, it was like, well, I really think what people are loving is like, it was shock, it was awe, but it was also the collective engagement about it. And there's this moment with like, oh my goodness, like my timeline's in sync, I love that energy. And it's like, yes, because everybody decided to watch this. I've gotten that same in- engagement, like go on during a Bachelor episode, right? On Twitter, <laughs> like it, that's not the only thing that brings a special kind of joy into the world is amateur sports. But like that enduring notion that this is no ordinary product is like the foundation of so much of this. And that is a faulty ass foundation because and, and to me, it's like that, I'm I'm constantly shocked by how enduring that romantic notion that this is not an ordinary product. This is somehow very special and very precious and like doing the main work of bringing joy to millions and that justifies all of the exploitation is something that I literally cannot wrap my head around. Linz, um, you've reported on kind of public opinion about this for a long time. Uh, is this for you a partisan issue? Do you see it breaking down, you know, Dems and Republicans? The instinct is always to say yes, because literally everything in society is a partisan issue these days um, and is becoming hyper so. But this is actually the one topic that is pretty shockingly bipartisan, um, in my opinion. Uh, So a couple years ago during March Madness, when I was still at Think Progress, I talked to um, Representative... Uh, Mark Walker, who actually, I was living in D.C. at the time, but if I was in Greensboro, he would have been my representative. But he's like a, he's not in Congress anymore, but he's like a MAGA Republican, basically, you know, very much lived on that. And I was shocked that he inter- he introduced the Student Athlete Equity Act, um, a bill that um, aimed to hit the NCAA in the, where it hurts the most, in the tax code. Um, to make sure that, um, you know, student athletes could get access to their name, image, and likeness. And it was pretty stunning talking to him because everything else he fights for is so against this. But in this one place, he was saying, um, oh, he told me a lot of these student athletes come from impoverished communities and there's a lot of money made on the backs of these young men and women. All these students, they can fight in the war, but they can't have any access to their image or likeness. If you see injustice and you don't do something about it, I think shame on you. It doesn't mean there aren't other battles to fight. It's, but it was just like, I was like, yes, yes, yes. But of course, um, do you not see the hypocrisy in every other you know thing you really um, produced? But that's not a standalone issue. That kind of got lost in the house because this was during um, the Trump years and there wasn't really much momentum. Um, but you have state bills that are on um, right now. The timeline is July 1st for all of this. And I'll talk about this a bit more later. But where Florida has a bill that will go into place. And that's a we know that's run by 
uh, Republicans that state that will give athletes, NCAA athletes, uh, access to their name, image, and likeness. And then you had during the Supreme Court argument, so Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas, barely ever speaks during oral um, arguments. Uh, He's famous, really, for not talking during these to the point where in 2016, he broke a 10-year silence (laughs) during Supreme Court arguments uh, because he was mad that um, domestic abusers couldn't have access to guns. That's a true story. That's a true story. Um, And he's only talked a handful of times since then, but he spoke up during this argument to say... Um, quote, it strikes me as odd that the coaches' salaries have ballooned and they're in the amateur ranks, as are the players. So he's essentially saying if they're all amateurs, why are the coaches' salaries ballooning the way they are? So I think that's one thing that kind of gives me a rare glimmer of hope is that there is um, bipartisan agreement. Um, I think where I'm concerned is that this is going to get really bogged down in um, uh, I think we're lucky that these state bills are kind of giving, making a sense of urgency right now because Congress isn't going to prioritize this otherwise. Cause it's not basically because it's not a wedge issue. They're not going to prioritize it. Amira, how much, um, how much do we owe to black lives matter? Um, activists and the the last years for creating public pressure around this issue? Um, well, I think that it absolutely is um, putting a continued spotlight on conversations that have been existing for a while. Um, I think that the activism, especially from college athletes over the last summer, um, where they addressed and used their platform to address um, racial uh, injustice, economic injustice uh, in terms of what they were dealing with as college students and issues of health concern um, being asked to play under a global pandemic really gave them a, a very sharp argument to to make publicly about their condition and their treatment um, to say, to point out the racial disparities of college sports the economic ones, and then the fact that given all of these things who were being put at risk to generate income. And then you had, you know, coaches like Mike Gundy from Oklahoma State, like saying the quiet part out loud when he was like, oh, my team is young. It doesn't matter if they get sick because we need money to move through the state of Oklahoma again. And I think that because of those um, kind of very clear what was exposed under the pandemic, um, a lot of their uh, continued activism will remain amplified. Of course, going into this uh, basketball postseason, you have um, uh, not NCAA property as a, a f- formational group and a hashtag wearing shirts. Um, you have that uh, coinciding with conversations about disparity in women's um, in the women's tournament that has also uh, been brought up by people who are looking at not NCAA property, also talked about women who need access to name, image, and likeness, you know, rights as well. And I think all of these things are compounding upon each other and, and really mounting. But the one thing I would keep our eye on is really corporate pressure, because we know that this is where needles really move. We've recently seen, of course, the All-Star game being moved out of Georgia, But that was not because of, you know, players saying, hey, we're not going to play in it if it's here. It really was because of corporate pressure. And I think that that's one of the things to keep our eye on, that oftentimes what's going to end up moving the needle is ultimately going to be corporations who pick up the call. And then it's obviously complicated, right, by how much they're bound up in the college sports landscapes. But I think the more and more public pressure that mounts and the more and more these athletes are speaking up about it and keeping it as a conversation and keeping it as a conversation in a way that can't be ignored like it so often is. Um, I do feel like it's a kind of building to a certain type of crescendo. We'll see what happens. And we know power likes to reinsert itself. So, you know, the same thing with name, image, and likeness. That was a movement. And then you see how it's kind of being watered down and declawed. 
So we'll see, but I think that the that there is absolutely an impact that that this has had, and I would just keep the eye on um, the ball of corporate sponsorship to see how fast things will continue to move. And I just want to add because um, I feel like it's worth naming Sean Alston, uh, who is on the case, the former uh, West Virginia University football player and Justine Hartman, uh, basketball player for Berkeley. And to just point out that one of the things that came up over and over, and actually Chris Bosch um, wrote something about um, college athleticism and not being paid as well, and they all name food scarcity. So I can't think of anything less romantic than going hungry. And this seems to be perpetuated in most of the lawsuits I went back and read that um, basically as the students are saying, you know, we need this to eat, we need this to, um, we need compensation for also knowing that our families are okay. Basically, the opposing attorneys are picking this apart And I just want to say, you know, there's so much in this country about the shame of being poor. And it's really like reflected, I think, in the way that these students are being treated. Why is it that being poor is so shameful when we know that in a a capitalist society, it's structured so that some people are going to be poor. And when the students are pointing out, I need this to make, you know, Um, I need this to help my mom. I need to sort of send her some of my book money or something like that. The lawyers really have gone after these um, students and said, you know, how dare you? You were just sending, you know, sending this luxury good. And so you have to look at the whole family. Coaches are more than happy to go and recruit students and their families. And then once they get there, they just um, are sort of forgotten that these people come from a whole set of institutions but people and and that um to dismiss their hunger to dismiss their concern about their families is really heartbreaking when you read through these transcripts and just that there's no way for them to win not having any money is shameful but then also asking for money and earning money is undignified so it puts them in this particular place where there's just no there's just no winning and um so i i think you know, I hope that they're treated differently going forward and that this continues to be more acknowledged. Even if the NCAA manages to win its case, uh, Lindsay, can you close us out on some hopeful possibilities that might still exist? Yeah, first, just to build on your point before, Brenda, I just want to bring up a reminder of the college admissions scandal um, that came out in 2019 with, of course, the Felicity Huffman and all those people. But I think it's important to contrast that with what you were just talking about, about athletes who are sending money back to their families and, you know, trying to eat. The fact that there was this whole underground um, admission scandal where the ultra wealthy were bribing college coaches and admissions officers to get their undeserving white children into these colleges to be placed on uh, an athletic team and then not even show up for, you know, they, they weren't even expected to play or participate in the sport at all. And so that's the way this program has been working, literally to profit everyone except the athletes that need it, right? Um, and that's just disgusting. But yeah, so this, this case that we're talking about right now, the Alston case that's in front of the Supreme Court, it doesn't specifically target name, image, and likeness. It's more about antitrust laws. So whether the NCAA can kind of cap what schools are providing uh, to the students. But it's all wrapped up, right? Um, And the NCAA is trying to find a way to maintain control over athlete compensation in a meaningful way. Uh, It's basically begging for help from Congress. It's begging to figure out rules because in states across the country, Um, We have laws that are about to come into effect, and this happened, this started in California, which passed in September 2019, um, a law that would uh, grant 
students' name, image, and likeness rights. But that law, that doesn't go into effect until um, January 1st of 2023. But since then, we've seen a litany of laws, including, as I mentioned earlier, this one that is supposed to pass in Florida of all places on this July 1st. Other states already have these laws in place, but that are scheduled to go into effect a year or two, you know, a couple years from now. Colorado, Michigan, Nebraska, and New Jersey. And then there are 17 other states with bills actively moving through the legislative process that all are going to give athletes rights. So, um, you know, what the NCAA is trying desperately to do is to maintain the ability to control this, right? So that it's not these individual states popping up because if um, a student athlete can go to Florida and have access to their name, image, and likeness, then, you know, they're going to go there as opposed to the schools elsewhere. And the NCAA wants to keep things uniform. But, um, I have hope kind of no matter where this goes because of these bills that are passing on the state level and because the speed. But I really what I don't want is the NCAA to come through with Congress's help and just water this all down, find a way to water this all down to the point that it doesn't um, actually accomplish what we want to accomplish. And the only uh, kind of good thing to if you if you're looking for good things to take away with this is rest assured the NCAA has no self-awareness and will continue to show its ass um and actually you know if we're talking about who's building the best case against them it's them if you tuned into the men's final four and saw Miley Cyrus host a full concert in the middle of halftime for instance that was a spectacle in a production, you can imagine how much money was invested in bringing that show there. You can ask yourself, A, why wasn't there a concert on the women's side? But B, you can also ask, you know, how much Miley was being paid for that. I saw one tweet that said, oh, I'm sure she just did it for a few, uh, you know, some mucho points in, uh, which is how we pay our student athletes here for their per diem. For Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> A few mucho points and uh, and uh, credit hours towards her Kinesi degree. <laughs> but, but we know that's not true. And so, you know, what also keeps this conversation in the spotlight and the tides turning against them is that they're going to continue to do ill-informed, unforced errors, like putting on a spectacle of a concert while everybody's talking about how much money they don't have to pay athletes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. 
BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com burn. That's betterhelp.com B-U-R-N. This week, Jessica interviews Dr. Cheryl Kuki about the 30-year study she helped to run that looks at the quantity and quality of TV news and highlights for women's sports. They discuss the abysmal and consistent lack of women's sports coverage, why the latest study is titled One and Done, the term gender bland sexism, and if there is a hope for changing things. I do think what is surprising about uh, the study is the fact that in over 30 years, again, looking at that specific, those media outlets uh, and the specific timeframes that we examine, that there has been relatively little change. And it's it's varied over time, right? So we've got uh, a spike up to about 8% in 1999. It dropped back down. It was as low as like 3.2 um, or around there, um, the last iteration. And it has kind of jumped, jumped up, quote unquote, jumped up to about 5%, um, which is where we started in 19. 19- 89. And now it's time for the burn pile, where we take some of the most horrible, terrible, or ridiculous things that happened in sports this week and set them aflame in the metaphorical, mostly, burn pile. Linz? Okay, so I have avoided this conversation on Twitter all week because I really did not want it to, you know... uh, ruin my day but i need to burn it so badly so i'm so glad we have this burn pile draymond green come on over so uh earlier this week draymond started off by going on a big twitter thread except he didn't actually thread his tweets because it's draymond green um but basically his tweet rant was all over the place um but it was essentially saying that women aren't doing enough to push their own cause they're just complaining about the lack of equal pay and that female athletes need to do more to advocate for themselves um (laughs) so this didn't go over very well um and draymond green though because he's draymond green has spent the week using his press conference time to double triple quadruple down on this Uh, Here's what he told reporters um, this week. I'm really tired of seeing them complain about the lack of pay because they're doing themselves a disservice by just complaining. They're not laying out steps that they can take to change that. It's coming off as a complaint because the people that can change it are just going to continue to say, well, the revenue isn't there. So if you don't bring in the revenue, we can't pay uh, up your pay. They're going to keep using that. But it's an excuse. So, yes, on one hand, Draymond Green understands what the overall problem is. On the other hand, he's putting the entire solution to fixing this on female athletes, which is the most ridiculous thing I've probably ever heard. Uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, women in sports are organizing on the ground. They are fighting for every single thing. They are starting their own production companies. They are wrestling their way to the top and doing this all with no guarantees, with no backup plans, with no million dollar contracts. They are demanding more. Women in sports have had to advocate and fight for every single bit of air and money they get. And for someone like Draymond Green, Draymond Green (laughs) 
to say that women aren't doing enough to advocate for themselves? Oh boy, that is rich. Uh, He needs to sit down, he needs to shut up, and he needs to look inward at what he can do to help this cause. Because women are doing it, and you need to amplify that work, Draymond. Not sit there complaining. And my favorite uh, comment about this was someone on Twitter responded to me. (laughs) This is my favorite tweet of all time right now. There's this Subway commercial that's been everywhere during um, March Madness time uh, with uh, Jason Tatum um, producing his sub. Check out my Subway sub with delicious turkey and crispy bacon. I'm Draymond Green with my Subway sub with tender steak and melty cheese. My sub will help you put points on the board, unlike some other subs. Why would you say that, Jason? Hey, man, I'm just talking about subs here. Oh, come on. My sub is going to throw down. My sub has more rings than your sub. My sub has bacon. And um, the point is supposed to be yay steak, yay Draymond Green. And then the person responded to me and they said, well, no matter what, I'm taking Jason Tatum's um, sub. (laughs) You're all out. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite one was the one, Lindsay, that was like, this is what happened when you don't put bacon in yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd like to throw Draymond Green and every single thing he said this week and his sub onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. I need to make this burn short because I feel like sometimes if I go through every detail, I'll actually get more angry and it won't, you know, it won't do the work that it should. So quickly, um, in hat tip to Kenny Jacoby, who reported this, Tristan Wallace, who's graced the burn pile in the past and was twice expelled for rape from the University of Oregon, will be competing next month at the HBCU National Combine for a shot at the NFL. I don't know how many people remember, but the sexual assault was removed from his transcript with the help of the State Department because his mother filed a civil rights suit saying that um, he was discriminated against for being a man. And that suit was not found in his favor or taken um, all the way, but instead they expunged his record, basically. Um, as a result. And so NFL teams will be watching him. I just want to burn that Tristan Wallace is allowed to represent HBCUs. I want to burn that he is allowed to play as a college player. He still has Texas A&M Prairie View next to his name. And um, I hope that it doesn't go his way. That's how mad and how awful it is so that the survivors don't have to see him and people rooting for him ever, ever, ever. Burn. 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 Amira. Yeah, I have um I have a quick burn update. Um, and then I'll do my real burn of in episode one ninety five, Jessica burned the Tennessee state Republicans who came together to sign a letter after um, the men's basketball team at at East Tennessee State University took a knee. If you remember, Jess reported that head coach Jason Shea was really supportive of this action. I just want to give you an update on this. Uh, After receiving this awful letter from 27, all 27 members of the, the state's Republican caucus that urged people to adopt policies to prohibit athletes from protesting during the national anthem, um, there is a lot of movement happening at ETSU. Multiple players are entering the transfer portal and they're talking as they do so. In particular, they're really concerned about why head coach Jason Shea is now out of a job. There's a lot of murkiness around this, with some calling it a resignation, the player saying it was forced. One of the players, um, Hall, who was a freshman forward entering the transfer portal, said the donor said that if Coach Shea was the still head, still the head coach next year, they were taking their funds. Everybody was pulling back if he was still there. I really think they're mad because Coach Shea is a white man standing up for the black community. This is still unfolding, and everybody keep their eye on ETSU. It seems to be a fucking mess. The burn that I really want to hone in on this week regards comments that 
Baylor coach Kim Mulkey made after her team lost um, in the women's basketball tournament uh, during the Elite Eight. It took time in the postgame, unprompted, not really asking a question, just offered this, that she believes that they should stop COVID testing. She said, wouldn't it be shame to keep COVID testing and then you got kids that test positive or something and they don't get to play in the final four? Obviously, a lot of people were like, what in the hell? Gino Oriyama, of course, came to her defense and said, well, we were just talking in Zoom about comparing our own experiences. And we heard from a health official that at this point, since we're being tested every day, there's a low likely there's a low likelihood of people continuing to get sick. And yet. Gino's clarifications didn't quite help. (laughs) I don't know if it helped you. Didn't really help me. Because I think the overwhelming thing I feel, right, is how flippant it feels like to have a concern, as Moki expressed, that what happens if they get a positive and then they cannot play. It's part and parcel to me with this feeling that COVID is over. We know that vaccinations are rolling out, but there's also variants. I mean, the Canucks have 14 players and three coaches right now seriously ill because of a COVID outbreak. And not to mention, we are now learning the news that Alabama superfan Luke Ratliff, who was Twitter famous for being the kind of crowd leader for University of Alabama's men's basketball team, he has passed away from COVID complications. He has passed away um, just days after he completed a trip to Indianapolis to watch Alabama compete in the men's March Madness tournament. One of his last tweets say, it's been a hell of a ride, Alabama, a ride of a lifetime. Good night. There is now an investigation to do contact tracing in Indianapolis to see about exposure at the tournament. It's unclear if he contracted COVID there or beforehand or not. But what we do know is within four days of returning from the tournament, he was hospitalized with uh, COVID complications and has since passed away at 23. This is devastating, as all loss of life are, and it's a stark reminder that we are not out of these woods yet. And in that line, to think how irresponsible it is to get on national TV and suggest that they should stop COVID testing because it would be sad if somebody would have to miss a game because of a positive test is beyond irresponsible. It's harmful. It's dangerous. Thankfully, they're going to continue to COVID test, but the rhetoric doesn't help at all. And I can't stop thinking about the decision to open up these arenas for fans like Ratliff, who is no longer with us. It's frustrating. I I don't have any words. We've been saying this for a year now. Burn. After all that burning, now it's time to celebrate people who are trying to change things for the better in sports. For Torchbearers of the Week, honorable mention goes to Trailblazing Ally of the Week, superstar coach of the Minnesota Lynx, Cheryl Reeve, wrote a statement against the recent group of proposed trans athlete bans. The Fire Lords of the Week are Dia Barnes and Don Staley, who made history as the first two black women head coaches to simultaneously coach in the final four of the women's basketball tournament. Um, also, many shout outs to Adia, who after her team pulled out an upset versus UConn, was seen giving an impassioned speech and flipping a double bird to tell the haters to fuck off <laughs> for who have doubted them. Of course, the moral police wanted to have outrage about this because God forbid a woman coach show emotion and swear. But all credit to Adia for handling the press conference like the boss she is and refusing to apologize and standing firm in the ground of who she is. I honestly had a moment with my team and I thought it was like a more intimate huddle. And I said to my team something that I truly felt and I know they felt, um, and it just like appeared different on TV, but I'm not apologizing for it because I don't feel like I need to apologize. It's what I felt with my team at the moment. 
Um, and it's, I wouldn't take it back. Um, we've gone to war together. We look around the room and we looked around the circle. We believe in each other. So I'm in those moments and that's how I am. So I don't apologize for doing that, but um, I'm just me and I have to just be me. Also shout out to Adia who has to be our coach mom of the week from being shat on before upsetting UConn to coming out late in the national championship game because she was pumping breast milk for her five month old daughter. Um, Adia is such a badass. And despite the NCAA making it very hard for working parents in this tournament, you were thriving just like you had your team resilient and thriving all year. We got a bunch of basketball-related honorable mentions, so here we go. Our Ballers of the Week go to the many awardees in women's college basketball. UConn guard Paige Beckers and Baylor forward Melissa Smith both earned Player of the Year's honors, Beckers being the first freshman to win the Namesmith Trophy, um, and Smith bringing home the Wade Trophy. Beckers also won AP Player of the Year, ESPN Player of the Year, all of the honors. (laughs) Um, Beckers and Smith join Aaliyah Boston, Dana Evans, and Ryan Howard as the Wooden Award finalists as well. In addition to that, we have our All-American team announced, which includes Arizona's Ari McDonald, Stanford's Kiana Williams, South Carolina's forward Aaliyah Boston, Chelsea Dungy from Arkansas, Dane Evans from Louisville, Michigan junior Naz Hillman, and Kentucky junior guard Ryan Howard. Congrats to all of y'all for your honors. We also have our Playmaker of the Week, what has to go to Ari McDonald. Can I add one more thing? Uh, sure. my, my name is Ari, not Ari. Sorry. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Ari McDonald carried her team Arizona on the back through the tournament putting up 31 in the upset versus A&M, 26 in the upset versus UConn, and 22 in the national championship game. 22 is also numbers of threes she hit over the course of the tournament, which ties the record for the most threes hit in an NCAA postseason women's tournament. In the category of shouldn't be difficult, but surprisingly good decision of the week, as we've mentioned, MLB moved the All-Star game in response to horrendous voter suppression law that was passed in Georgia last week. And then in the Red Hot Talent of the Week, we've got Jordan Larson, the inaugural Athletes Unlimited Volleyball Champion. And we also want to shout out the second and third place winners, Bethany De La Cruz and Bree King. Congrats to everyone uh, in the Athletes Unlimited Volleyball uh, universe for a great first season. And we look forward to season two. Can I get a drum roll, please, for the Torchbearers of the Week? Our Torchbearers of the Week, of course, have to be Stanford, who captured the national championship game, the team that spent 86 nights in a hotel, 10 weeks on the road, the epitome of COVID, of pandemic basketball, the number one seed, the overall number one seed, went out on top, capturing the championship on Sunday night with a 54-53 win over Arizona. Haley Jones led the team, 17 points, MVP, absolutely phenomenal defense by Anna Wilson and Cameron Brink. Full team effort, Kiana Williams was phenomenal as usual. The team was just all around sound, weathered the storm like they've done all season to capture the title. Tar Vanderveer, the winningest coach, adds yet another win to the record books. After a 29-year gap between championships, brings Stanford's third title, now tied in third place to the most championships held by D1 women's basketball coach. Coach Vanderveer said after the game, sometimes you just have to stick with things. For me as a coach, you want to win national championships, and we've had shots at it. I've had heartbreaks with teams that had great shots of winning it, but this team won, and I'm so proud of them. Coach, the whole team, we are so proud of you. You are champions. And of course, you are our torchbearers of the week. And now it's time to talk about what is good in our world. Um, I will go first. I started Elena Ferrante's The Lying Life of Adults, and it's as good as I expected. And I always love her, but it's such a treat to get something new. Um, and also it is my daughter Luna's birthday this week. 
and so she is going to be 12 and that's really wild and I'm excited for her and um, you know at least with the weather she's able to hang with friends outside and safely so um, I feel really excited for her for this week it's going to be awesome. Amira what about you what's good in your world? Um, we're almost over <laughs> with the semester here. Um, um, I just received news that I had a successful fourth Yay! year review. So in academic spaces, that's, that's the last hurdle, right? Um, that clears you for tenure, um, in the next t- few years. Um, so that was a nice, a nice thing to receive, um, so I'm feeling good about that, and um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's mostly it. I am, um, I forgot. <laughs> I think that's mostly it. We're that just sounds go good. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm basically, I see, I see the light at the end of the tunnel of the semester, and I'm just trying to wade through these next few weeks, and um. Oh, uh, I am. I do have something else. Um, both of my moms in Massachusetts have now been vaccinated. Yay! So in mid, I think, I think early May, we'll be able to see them. And, you know, it's been a year because we, you know, we, we, we saw my mom and dad in Texas over pandemic, but my moms are <laughs> older. So we definitely um, haven't, haven't had that same ability and so I'm much very looking forward to that reunion we've already started planning for it and um I'm already kind of energized by by um that reunion so good things good things good stuff Lynn's uh, yeah, so on um, Saturday afternoon, I got to um, spend some outdoor time with my family. We did a little Easter gathering, and um, uh, some friends and cousins were there. And I'm averaging about one um, one gathering per month of, like, seeing people right now. <laughs> and uh, every time I do, I'm reminded that I need to up that a little bit because um, – I live alone and uh, it gets real lonely. Um, so that was great. Um, since I've gotten my first vaccine dose since Yay. I did the last episode. So that's good. We're on the road. And I don't know. I just feel like I need to mention I'm, this is not something that's good. This is something that's sad, but it reminds me of good things. Um, Roy Williams retired this week and I was not expecting that. And if for anyone who knows me, like my two, like, pure just like fandoms of just like teams or UNC men's basketball and the Carolina Panthers like those are who I grew up like living and dying for and so uh you know Roy is not a perfect human I'm not trying to get into debates about <laughs> about uh the the UNC men's basketball program I know that that is not perfect but I will just say, like, from a fandom standpoint, Roy Williams is, re- is responsible for some of my favorite sports memories of all time. And, um, you know, he was joy on the, you know, he brought so much joy to the sidelines and to press conferences. And uh, I love that. And I'm going to miss him. And I'm grateful for him. And, yeah, so I just wanted to say that because I was not expecting that news. <laughs> It's also my pleasure to announce our inaugural flamethrower of the month. For April 2021, I am pleased to announce that we want to put a big spotlight on Ellie Mazer. Ellie is one of our youngest flamethrowers, but so tenacious. Um, And feel free to head over to our Instagram to read more about Ellie and her flamethrower uh, how she came to burn it all down, what she has going on. But I will just share with you one of the things she told us and what is her hope for the future of sports. And Ellie said, I hope that women get um, paid equally in all the same stuff as men and that people watch them and realize how awesome they are. We at Burn It All Down, of course, share in your vision for the future of sports, Ellie, and also want you to know how awesome we think you are. Congrats. You are our flamethrower of the month. Oh, 
Okay, well, some things that we are watching this week is NWSL is back, starting with the Challenge Cup. Also, there's amazing activity in international friendlies in women's soccer, um, including some strange matchups that I'm not sure we've ever seen, like Japan versus Panama, um, and some standards that should be great, like the U.S. women's national team versus Sweden. Germany versus Australia should be a really good game as well. I hear that people, there are people out there that watch the men's golf masters tournament and that this is an important golf tournament <laughs> for people. So that's <laughs> happening. I've, I've, I've heard that from my co-host. So um, golf fans can, can, can look out for that. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. Especially now more than ever, burn on and not out. This episode was produced by the wizard Tressa Versteg and Shelby Weldon extraordinaire does our website and social media. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. We are on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com for previous episodes, transcripts, and links to the show notes. From there, you can email us directly. And uh, there are also links to our Patreon. We want to thank always, always, and especially eternally grateful to our patrons for your support. I'm Brenda Elsie on behalf of Amira Rose Davis and Lindsay Gibbs. Have a great week.